and invite you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6. And this morning, we will be considering Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 12, which include perhaps some of the, the most challenging, troubling verses in the Bible. And so I will preemptively warn you, this, this text will probably raise more questions for you than I will be able to answer in one sermon. And so it's probably not great that this is a week we don't have asked the pastor because some of you probably would have come and had questions, but you are still allowed to ask me questions after the service, or you can write me emails or call me, meet with me. I would be happy to keep working through some of these challenging subjects with you. But before we hear this word, let us once again ask for God's help, for he is the one who will ultimately give us understanding and lead us into all truth. So please pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, I confess that this has been a hard week for me, just many things weighing on my mind and heart. I'm sure that is true for others here this morning, and this is a hard word, a hard word to understand and know how to apply. But Lord, it is your word. And no matter what we have faced this week, you are calling us into your presence now. You are going to speak to us through your word and spirit. And so we trust that you will do a good work in us. So we do ask for your help. That you would be a patient teacher to us and we would be patient learners. Lord, if there are any here who are really wrestling with their faith and they are contemplating just throwing in the towel and giving up, I pray that your word this morning would shake them. But I pray that it would lead them into a far greater assurance than they had before. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now the word of the Lord to you this morning from Hebrews chapter 4. Verses six, through, verses, Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 12. Our author writes, For it is impossible, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God, and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, to restore them once again to repentance." Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for those whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. 
And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. This is the holy, inerrant, authoritative, sufficient word of God. Well, throughout my time as the pastor of Good Shepherd, I have repeatedly emphasized and taught the doctrine that God preserves his people until the very end, affirming with the Apostle Paul that he who began a good work in you will bring it to the day of completion, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ, as he writes in Philippians chapter 1 verse 6, and that Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, as he writes in Romans chapter 8. So in light of this, I have labored by God's grace to grow your assurance of faith. Preaching like John wrote that you may know that you have eternal life. 1 John chapter 5. And I remain firmly convinced after spending another week in Hebrews chapter 6 that Jesus' promise is true when he says, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day, John 6. And again, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. John chapter 10. I believe those verses are still true and I want you to hold those verses in your heart as you listen this morning to what is also God's word in Hebrews chapter 6. For not every Christian agrees with me on these points. And perhaps the text that is most often hurled at Reformed teaching, like a grenade to blow up the doctrines of perseverance and assurance, is the one that I just read to you. Especially verses 4 through 8. And indeed, there are few verses in Scripture that have confused and distressed Christian souls more than these verses. And they ought to distress you to some degree because they constitute a warning against a terrifying danger. And if you do not take this warning seriously, you may very well walk headlong into this danger. However, the author's goal in giving this soul-shaking warning is not to leave his hearers in confused despair. His goal in shaking them is actually to lovingly protect them from the danger and lead them into greater assurance. He is shaking them in order to assure them. So just peek ahead to verse 11. He says, and we desire. Means that this is my aim. This is my goal. We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. So in his mind, the end goal here is not confused despair. It is greater assurance of hope. And so he gives them a soul-shaking warning, but then he immediately follows it with a soul-stabilizing word. 
He writes in verse 9, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. Things that belong to salvation. Now I begin here because I want you to see up front that those who use these verses to diminish God's preservation and destroy assurance are not wielding the warning as the author intended it to be wielded. He did not warn to destroy assurance, but to establish it. So I want you to see the, the finish line so you don't get lost along the way and end up in a very different destination. Now my aim is not to defang this warning because it is meant to shake you. But my aim, as I believe the author's aim, is to for, more firmly establish you on the foundation of faith in Christ and guarding you from seeking to build on any other foundation. In particular, guarding you against building the foundation of your faith and assurance on just some past powerful or emotional experience that you once had. So think of this passage like demolition before construction. Sometimes to lay a firm foundation and build a stable house, you need to first demolish what is rotting, broken down, and unstable. That's what our author is doing. He's doing some demolition before he does some construction. So I'll first explain his soul-shaking warning, offer three lessons in light of it, and then conclude with his soul-stabilizing word and exhortation to pursue God's promise through patient faith. First, then, is the soul-shaking warning. Throughout this letter, the author has been warning the Hebrews to pay better attention to what they've heard so that they don't drift from or neglect their salvation. We heard that in chapter 2. He's been warning them to guard against an unbelieving heart that would lead them to fall away from the living God, just like the Israelites in the wilderness did after they came out of Egypt and then refused to go into the promised land. We heard that in chapter 3. And at the end of chapter 5 and into chapter 6, which we heard last week, he has again warned them against growing dull of hearing. Reverting back, not just to spiritual infancy, but all the way to spiritual death, as if they would become unborn. So if you think of these Hebrews like candles, the problem is not merely the light's not growing in brightness fast enough. It, the danger's not even just that the light is dimming. He is warning them about that light going out. You can sense on every page of this letter his great urgency. He dearly loves these people and he is gravely concerned for them. Now, why is he so concerned? Why is he so urgent as he writes? Well, we see why in verses 4 through 6. It is because of the seriousness of the danger that they are facing. Because if... If you see your, your two-year-old and he's holding a, a dull butter knife, you'll, you'll go over, you'll calmly take away the, the butter knife and as much as you can warn the child, don't, don't touch that, that's, that's dangerous, but you're not 
going to be freaking out. There's only so much harm you can do with a dull butter knife. But if you see your two-year-old with a sharp steak knife, you're probably going to move a little quicker and warn them a little more urgently. Because the danger and potential damage is far greater with the steak knife than with the butter knife. The author, therefore, is so urgent because he doesn't think the Hebrews are just in danger of some spiritual bruising. He thinks they're in danger of spiritual suicide. For the author, there are only two directions they can be moving. They are either going on to spiritual maturity, as we read in chapter 6, verse 1, or they are regressing to spiritual death. For to fall away from the living God is to fall into spiritual death. And this regression or falling away is what is called apostasy. Apostasy is to once claim faith in Christ, but then to ultimately forsake it and return to unbelief. And the grave danger the author warns against is that there's no return from that kind of spiritual apostasy. To fall away from the living God is to fall forever. So here's how the author puts it. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding them up to contempt. It is impossible, he says. For those who have had certain Christian experiences and then walk away from Christianity to be restored to repentance. Now I'm going to break that down into five parts. What does he mean by impossible? What kind of Christian experience is he describing? What, it, what really is falling away? What's he talking about with res restoration to repentance? And what's the reason for this impossibility? I'm not going to take equal time on all of those some are very brief. So, for example, we begin with, what does he mean by impossible? He means impossible. There are those who, who read this and think, well, he just means it's really hard. It's not what the word means. It means it's never going to happen. And he doesn't mean, like Jesus says about salvation, well, it's impossible with man, but all things are possible with God. No, he, he speaks of them being restored in the passive voice. He's saying God's not going to do this for them. Not they just can't do it for themselves. It's not that God wants to do it and he just can't. It's that God won't do it. That's what makes it impossible. So, impossible means impossible. Number two, perhaps the biggest question surrounding this text is what kind of person is the author describing? So I'm going to spend a little bit more time here than I do on these other parts. Is he describing a genuine believer, one who has been regenerated, born again by the Holy Spirit, has saving faith, but then forsakes that faith and loses salvation? Is that the kind of person he's describing or is he describing someone who professes faith? 
looks like a Christian, believes some of these gospel things are true, but doesn't have saving faith, was never regenerate, and then ultimately forsakes his profession. Well, as we break down these phrases, I believe the answer becomes clear. So, what are these experiences? He begins by describing the one who has been enlightened. He uses that again in chapter 10, verse 32, when he talks about how the Hebrews have suffered since they were once enlightened. And I believe this is somewhat clarified a little earlier in chapter 10, when the author says in verse 26, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. So at the very least, enlightenment here, to some degree, is describing someone who has received the truth. They've heard the truth, and to some degree at least, or for some time at least, they say, yeah, I, I think this is true. The next phrase says that such people have tasted the heavenly gift. To taste is to experience. So it means that to some degree they have experienced God's blessing and, and provision. Next, the author says they've shared in the Holy Spirit. So they have experienced some work of the Holy Spirit in and around them. And furthermore, they've tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. They have heard the true faithful preaching of the gospel. They've even seen accompanying signs and, and wonders. You remember that Jesus, as he sends out his apostles in the apostolic age, says, signs and wonders are going to accompany your preaching so that people know this is the true work of God. And the author of Hebrews acknowledged in chapter 2 that he and the Hebrews heard this gospel and they experienced these signs and wonders. He writes in chapter 2, How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. They've experienced all of this. So putting this together, I summarize the type of, of person as someone who has had real Christian experiences. They've heard the gospel. They've affirmed it's true. They've experienced some work of the Holy Spirit. They've seen and experienced God's provision and power. But does that mean that this is someone who is truly regenerate and possesses saving faith? I don't believe so. And I'll give you four reasons why. The first two come from this text itself. You have to always read in light of its own context. For the author is describing these experiences which accurately reflect the experiences of the Hebrews. But he describes them in terms once again that recalls that Israelite generation in the wilderness that came out of Egypt but didn't enter the promised land. So one of the first questions I'm asking is, is there an example that he has in mind as he describes these experiences? And I believe there is. 
It's the same example that he has held out to them repeatedly in this letter and said, don't be like those Israelites who had all of these good things from the Lord, who were brought out of Egypt, but they just grumbled and complained and ultimately turned away from the Lord, rebelled, and they didn't enter the promised land. I think that's once again who he is warning them, don't be like them because we've seen what happens. The Lord said, you're never going to enter my rest because they rejected everything he had done for them. So enlightened recalls the, the repeated description of the Israelites as they were led by a pillar of fire by night, as it says in Nehemiah 9, Exodus 30, uh, 13, 21, to light the way for them in which they should go. Again, Tasting the heavenly gift recalls the description of the Israelites receiving manna from heaven miraculously, which it says again and again in Exodus 16, Nehemiah 9, Psalm 105, that God gave them bread from heaven. It's described as a heavenly gift. Shared in the Holy Spirit recalls the language of Numbers eleven seventeen and Isaiah 63, verse 11. In Numbers 11, the Spirit of the Lord in Moses is also placed on the elders who are to help guide and, and lead the Israelites in the way that they should go. And in Isaiah 63, which speaks of Moses and the Exodus, it says that God placed his Holy Spirit in their midst. They were having spirit experiences all over the place. And finally, tasting the good word of the Lord and the powers of the age to come. Yes, refers to what the Hebrews experienced, the powers of the age to come, the signs and wonders that are accompanying the apostolic preaching of the gospel, but is also reminiscent of the Israelites receiving God's word and good promises and also experiencing many signs and wonders. In Joshua 21 and 23, it, it speaks of how the word of all the good promises of the Lord came to pass. And so I think that's where he's getting this description of the good word. Now, seeing these connections, I think, makes clear that the author believes these kinds of experiences do not necessarily imply true belief and salvation. They can accompany true belief and salvation. But they are not sufficient in themselves for true belief. The Israelites in the wilderness believed many true things. They believed in the true God. They had many spiritual highs and powerful experiences. And yet they ultimately turned away from the living God in disobedience. They had a temporary, a transitory faith. Not a saving faith. To grow up in Israel and hear God's law and experience God's power did not make one a true spiritual Israelite. Paul is clear about that in Romans 9. He says, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. So the first reason I don't believe the author is warning against true believers losing their salvation is because he seems to have a particular example in mind. And even though those Israelites had some true knowledge and powerful experiences, they did not have saving faith. 
The second reason is because of the analogy he uses in verses 7 and 8. He describes a field that receives rain. But essentially, he's describing two fields. One, in, in the first example, the field receives the rain and it produces a useful crop and receives the blessing of the Lord. But then he describes again this field as receiving rain, but producing thorns and thistles. Now notice in this analogy that in each case, the same rain is coming down upon the field. This is just a description of the spiritual blessings he has described earlier. But it's not that the field first produces a fruitful crop, a useful crop, and, and then it starts to produce thorns and thistles. But there's two examples here. In one, there's, there's a useful crop. In the other, there's thorns and thistles. So the analogy is of two different experiences, not the same experience in the same person. So the point is that different fields can experience the same rain, but produce and have a very different result. And the language of thorns and thistles recalls the curse in Genesis 3 and the covenant curses in Deuteronomy 11. So he's saying people can in one sense be part of the covenant community, but how they ultimately respond to God's covenant promises, whether with belief or unbelief, determines whether or not they will receive covenant blessings or curses. The analogy, therefore, doesn't point to one person experiencing two conditions, salvation and then condemnation, but between two different kinds of people who have received some of the same blessings. The third reason that I think this is an accurate interpretation of Hebrews 6 is because it is very consistent with what we find elsewhere in Scripture. This fits very well with Jesus' parable of the soils. The same seed is scattered all over the place. And there's different kinds of soils that receive the seed. And some of them even spring up at first with, with joy. They receive the seed, but they don't last. But notice, that's not the good soil. The good soil produces fruit that lasts. So we are not surprised when we read the rest of Scripture that there are certain experiences that look like Christian faith, but the Bible is clear it's it's not. It wasn't good soil that became bad soil. It was bad soil that initially looked kind of good. And the Bible gives us many examples in addition to the wilderness generation of those who had some knowledge of the truth and experienced spiritual highs and yet ultimately weren't saved. Perhaps the greatest example in addition to Simon the, the magician or those in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says they, they will come saying, Lord, Lord, and I'll, I'll say, I never knew you. They'll say, we did all of these amazing things in your name. And he says, I never knew you. Not, I knew you at one point and then stopped knowing you. I never knew you. The greatest example, though, of this reality is Judas Iscariot. He was one of the twelve. He was one of the twelve closer to Jesus on earth than, than anybody else on earth. He believed, to some degree, believed this was the Messiah. He's following Jesus. He's put in charge of the finances. He's along with the others casting out demons and performing miracles. Again, nobody suspected Judas as betraying Jesus. 
Jesus says, one of you will betray me. And they all start thinking, is it's me, not, oh, I bet it's Judas. And so everyone from the outside thought Judas is a genuine disciple. And yet Judas is referred to as the son of destruction who did what he was always destined to do. There was some good things. But ultimately, Judas was not a true disciple of Jesus Christ. And I also think of those that John writes his first letter to. Who have experienced some who were part of their church and then they left the church. And they left the faith. And John writes to those who remained saying, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. So John has a category for people who are in the church, but who leave because they were never truly part of it. He says, if they were genuine believers, they would have stayed. Because that's what genuine believers do. They had false faith, not saving faith. They had temporary faith, not finishing faith. And the fourth and final reason I believe this is because the rest of Scripture is so abundantly clear that God never loses his people, that we have to read Scripture in light of Scripture. It's one of the basic principles of reading God's Word. Interpret his Word in light of his Word. The, little, the, the murkier, more shadowy passages, read in light of the, the really bright ones. I read a few of those verses at the beginning. There are many, many more. God always completes what he starts. Christ keeps what the Father gives him. He will raise up his people on the last day. No one can snatch them from his hand. Nothing can separate us from his love. The Bible's teaching on this is so clear. So in summary, the author is describing people who have had true knowledge, spiritual highs and powerful experiences, but who were not truly saved and eventually give up and walk away from the living God. They fall away. And so that's number three, what I believe it is to fall away. It is not a Christian losing his salvation. Christians can look like they've fallen away at times. They can stumble, they can wander, but they never entirely fall away. Falling away is professing Christ, but then denouncing him never to return. From our perspective, we can't always tell when this has happened. However, we do see that the one who has fallen away will never repent. So that brings us to number four. What does the author mean? They can't be restored to repentance. This is again key for understanding this passage. Notice, he does not say in this case, it is impossible for God to forgive them if they repent. There is nowhere in scripture where you will find repentant sinners and God saying, nope, don't forgive you. Even when we get to chapter 12, you may think that you see that with Esau, but that's not what you're seeing. And I'll explain it when we get there. God always forgives those who turn to him in faith and repentance. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. I say that every time we take the Lord's Supper because it's always true. There are no exceptions to those promises. 
This is not describing an exception. What he says is they will never be restored to repentance. Meaning they will never repent. And you can't be forgiven if you never repent. So, for some of you who may read this and start freaking out and think, is this me? Do you see your sin? Even if you have been wandering for years and nobody knows it. You grew up in the church and then you left and you're here now and you're thinking, what have I done? I do believe that he's, he's the savior. I, I hate my sin. If that's how you are feeling, this is not describing you because you would not be feeling that. There would be no repentance within you. So, for those who remain repenting, who have perhaps even wandered but are repenting, they do not fall into this category because this person will never be restored to repentance. Why can they not, therefore, be saved? Why is this impossible? Number five, the author tells us, because they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. The image is that of the Jews as they shouted, crucify him, crucify him. He was sent to his own people to save them from their sins. And they said, we want you dead. Not for our salvation, because we don't want anything to do with you. Kill him, crucify him, we don't want him. And the image is also of the Romans, who stripped Jesus, who beat Jesus. And he had come for their salvation too. And they put a robe on him and a crown of thorns, and they laugh at him, and they mock him, and they spit in his face. You think you're a king? You're pathetic. When we have received the truth of the knowledge of Jesus Christ, we have experienced the real power of the gospel, and we ultimately say, no thank you. We are like those Jews who say, crucify him, like those Romans who spit in his face. And Christ was crucified once for the salvation of the world. You crucify him again in this sense that you say, I want nothing to do with you. It is only for your harm and not your salvation. There is one way of salvation. You say, I don't want it. How do you think you're going to be saved? It is impossible, the author is telling us. The soul-shaking warning, therefore, to the Hebrews, to me and to you, is this. You have received the knowledge of the truth. You've been enlightened. You've tasted the heavenly gift. You've shared in the Holy Spirit. You've tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. If I walk away from this, if you walk away from this, there is no more possibility for salvation. So what are three lessons we take away from this Terrifying warning. Well, number one, we must realize that not everyone who looks like a Christian is a Christian. You have to have that category in your mind. You can have Christian experiences without being a Christian. 
But if you don't have this category in your mind, then you will despair when you see those who have professed Christ who are maybe mighty preachers of the gospel and then they walk away. We've got tons of deconversion, deconstruction stories out there. And you think, well, we're all done. If he can fall away, I can fall away. If you don't have this category, you might unnecessarily despair. You also might have a sense of false security. If you think, well, I've professed Christ. I, I made a decision once. I've, I've felt some really powerful emotions when I've sung before. I've even closed my eyes and raised my hands. I must be a Christian. Not everyone who looks like a Christian is a Christian. And so... The second lesson is we must learn not to make past spiritual highs and powerful experiences the foundation of our faith. It's especially easy, I think, in our American culture to get caught up in the glamorous and the impressive. Oh, there were many who followed Jesus on earth because they thought he was pretty impressive. They really liked when he cast out demons and he healed sick people and raised dead people and multiplied loaves and fishes and walked on water and calmed storms. Now that's power. That's provision. They didn't like it so much when he told them that he was their savior and their king. When he talked about sin and repentance. When he spoke about self-denial and taking up crosses. We can similarly get caught up with eloquent, eloquent speakers, miracles, big churches, big bands, lifted hands, tears, and great acts of service and think, now that's genuine, powerful Christianity. And it might be. It might not be. When we consider our own, our own faith, yeah, we, we may look at, oh, I, I went to a, a conference. I went on a youth retreat. Felt really powerful things. And we put our trust in those past experiences. That does not make you a Christian. And your hope of salvation does not rest on those kinds of experiences. I attended youth groups. I went to conferences, retreats. I saw many of my classmates having really powerful emotional experiences. And most of them are not walking with the Lord anymore. Now, I hope it's a temporary setback, but I don't know. Now, many of those things are good. Please do not hear me that if you raise your hands and close your eyes when you think, sing, that I'm looking out and going, oh, that's false. That's a good, okay thing to do. Presbyterians, you can raise your hands. But that's not the foundation of our faith. The Christian life is not leaping from mountaintop to mountaintop. Most of it is treading along in the valley. What's going to happen then? Experience is essential, but it's not the foundation of your faith. And it's not enough to make you a Christian. Think if you, you can go to a pool party. You can put on a swimsuit. You can eat the food, you can laugh, have good conversations. You might even get wet when people jump in the pool and it splashes on you. But you can go to a pool party without ever swimming in the pool. 
You can do church things without ever really being part of the church. Or think of a wedding ceremony. You can attend the wedding. You can hear the vows. You can be moved by the display of love and commitment. You can throw confetti. You can dance at the reception. And you never got married. You had some of the same experiences, but all of that did something very different for the bride and groom than it did for you. That's not the mark. It's not a sure mark of a Christian. What is then? The Bible gives us many marks of a true Christian. But here's what we see in this text. We see that Christians bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Remember, those who fall away are ultimately unrepentant. So continual repentance is a good sign of genuine faith. And so is bearing fruit. Jesus says you'll, you'll know people by their fruit. The author of Hebrews uses an analogy of a field that's Bearing a useful crop to describe a true believer. And this is actually why he then follows up and writes to these Hebrews and says, Okay, I know I've just said some really scary things, but I want you to know in your case, I actually don't think this is what's happening. I think you're in trouble right now. But I'm actually sure that the end for you is salvation and not apostasy. Why? And why with such a dire warning? Is he not despairing? Well, one, because he actually thinks that this warning is going to be part of God's preserving power in their life. I think, well, if he doesn't think this is going to happen to them, why does he warn them? Because he thinks that one of the ways that God guards us from apostasy is when other brothers and sisters come to us and say, you're in trouble. You, you need to wake up. You need to pay attention. His letter is like putting up a warning sign on an electric fence. It's, it's putting up the sign that's going to pe keep people from grabbing the fence. And in the same way, he thinks this will help keep them from apostasy. And he believes this because he sees genuine fruit in their lives. He sees evidence of God's saving work. And he trusts God's promise that what God begins, he will complete. He also believes... Therefore, that they can have assurance and not be afraid. And what is the evidence of God's work in them? In this case, it is the mark of brotherly love. He sees the way that they have loved and served one another and the way that they're still doing that. We'll see in chapter 10 ways they've demonstrated this love. But Jesus said his disciples would be marked by their love for one another. And he sees that mark in these Hebrews. And not only do they have love for one another, they do have love for Christ. He says, you've been doing this for his name. So the author sees what John the Baptist preached. When John the Baptist said, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. That's what Christians do. And that's what the author sees. Yes, they've become a bit wobbly, but that's why they need the warning. So the author doesn't stop with this soul-shaking warning, but he follows it up with a soul-stabilizing word. He wants to demolish the, the foundation of powerful experience and construct them again upon the foundation of faith in Christ. He wants to shake them so they will not be sluggish in their faith, but will pursue God's promises through faith and patience, for it is patient faith, not powerful feelings, that inherits God's promises. 
And ultimately, that's where the author is headed. He's encouraged by their brotherly love, but we're going to see next week that his ultimate hope is, is not in their love, but it's in the, the sureness of God's promise. However, as the author steers them away from trusting in spiritual highs and powerful experiences, he directs them back to patient faith. As your pastor, when I think of what I'm called to do, when I think of what I want Good Shepherd to be known for, I want, by God's grace, to make disciples that will last. That Good Shepherd will be known as a place of patient faith. That we believe and we keep on believing. I don't think ever anyone will ever look at Good Shepherd, no matter how many years of ministry God gives us, and think, oh, that's just a really impressive church. I pray that they will look at us and say, that is a really faithful church. They, they just keep enduring suffering whenever it comes. They keep loving one another, even when they hurt each other and don't always agree on things. They serve one another. They serve others. They just keep coming back to the gospel week after week after week. They just keep praising the Lord week after week in tears and in rejoicing. For I am convinced that growing, enduring faith and everyday faithfulness will produce the kinds of Christians that will have the greatest kingdom impact and transformational presence in this world. It'll be slow, but it will last. This world needs gospel-believing and obeying Christians who endure suffering, who never shrink back from the church, who serve God wherever he has called them day after day. It may look small to the rest of the world and even to other Christians, but this is what God calls us to do and reproduce. Changing hearts is how you will change the world. And so here is one of my theme verses as we go in to 2023. It is 1 John chapter 5, verse 4. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. You want to overcome the world? Let's see more new birth and faith in the world. He says, and this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Faith is victory over this world. Faith is a power this world doesn't recognize, and yet it cannot conquer. And so what we need is faith that will be patient. That's how we will inherit God's promises. So how do we walk away from this text? Should we walk away confused and terrified? No. We should walk away with a renewed seriousness and humility that leads us to sing with the hymn writer, I need thee every hour. The danger of apostasy is real, but the answer is not in just some kind of mountaintop experience. The only soul that will never fall into apostasy is the soul that humbly clings to Christ by faith hour after hour after hour. 
So this passage teaches you not to trust in past experiences and it warns you not to grow lazy in your faith thinking you can let your guard down and just coast the rest of the way into eternity. Do not grow complacent, the author is warning us. Instead, grow in humble dependence upon Christ. I need thee. Oh, I need thee. Every hour I need thee. Oh, bless me now, my Savior. I come to thee. Make that the anthem of your life and sing that all the way into eternity. Faith and patience, not feelings and powerful experiences, will inherit the promises of God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, I pray that you would take that good word and you would apply it to each of us as we need to hear it. For those who are genuine believers, I pray that, yes, you would shake them, but at the end of the day, they would land in a field of greater assurance. I pray for those who are growing complacent, wake them up and use this warning to bring them back. I pray for those who have not placed faith in Jesus Christ. Use this word to awaken them to the glory of Christ crucified. And may they turn in faith and repentance to him. Help us, Lord, because only you can do these things. And so we ask you to do them in the name of Jesus. Amen.